The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And after they had, uh, they had left their father Zebedee in the boat with them and the hired servants and followed him. And then in chapter number 2, verse 13, that Jesus went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is the word of the Lord, and it is for our good. Please be seated, if you would, and uh, have your Bibles open now to the first chapter of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter number 1. Thank you for being out this morning. There's been some adverse conditions this week. Yesterday was particularly harsh. And I'm so grateful to see so many. Um, we, well, we can't apologize for things that aren't our fault, right? I mean, it isn't our fault. We are in the country. Even though we have a somewhat modern facility, we are in the country. So if you walked in and you that kind of septic-y smell, you know, that's just part of the charm of being a country church. Um, I think you get used to it eventually. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, Mark chapter number one. There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There is a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measure of a man's mind. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. The sermon is going to explore discipleship through the lens of the gospel. A few of us men sat around a table yesterday morning at Bible study down at St. James and talked about the gospel. Zab, what is the gospel? That is exactly right. Get that boy a hot chocolate. It is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. We should keep in mind um, that the first readers of Mark's gospel, uh, much like us, were a very diverse group of people. A very diverse group of people. They were diverse economically and educationally. They were diverse in their customs and diverse in their cultures. They were also diverse in their religious and political opinions. To get at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires us to wrestle 
with the very meaning of the word gospel as good news that then unites a diverse group of people. Uh, One thing that uh, the past number of years has shown us as a congregation is how much diversity there is within congregational life. Pro-Trump, anti-Trump, anti-mask, pro-mask, anti-vax, pro-vax. In the past, all we had to worry about was Red Sox and Yankee fans. (laughs) I got in an extended debate with a good friend of mine, jokingly so, when uh, she suggested that Cumberland Farms was better than Stewart's. I said, you're out of your mind. How could that possibly be? And I spent way more time than necessary to extol the virtues of Stewart's. And don't you get in my face about that. What the gospel asks is that we live out our diversity within the good news of what Jesus has done. Of what Jesus has done. A truth that Mark testifies to in his gospel account is that having a discipleship that is rooted in the gospel will always move us closer together because the gospel is what, Zeb? It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. Two groups. My arms aren't, you know, aren't long enough to express how far apart they were. And the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, brings diverse people together. The word gospel is used three times by Mark in the first 15 verses. We should be aware, though, that the gospel, or the word gospel, is not originally a Christian word. Now, many of us may not know that, who grew up in church from our very infancy, they were talking about the gospel. It was not originally a Christian word. The word actually was used widely in the Roman era. At its root, it means good news that brings joy. Uh, 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 Someone would come into a village, uh, come into a town at the center of the square, and they would bring a message from Rome, and they would announce the good news. The Roman army conquered another land. Uh, You're going to get a rebate on your taxes. That probably never happened, but you know, that that would be kind of good news. They announced good news, and the people would gather around, and they would celebrate the good news that was brought by the messenger. Well, under the guidance then of the Holy Spirit, the biblical authors take that that common idea of of good news, of gospel, and they adopt it as a way of understanding then that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Son of Man, had come to earth and he had conquered the enemy of death and through his subsequent resurrection is offering life to all, who would by faith come to him. It's radical news. The news Rome brings is that we've defeated our enemies by killing them. The good news of the gospel says that God has come to earth. He died for his enemies. He died for those that had sinned against him. At its heart, the gospel asks you to believe that God 
came to earth, the fullness of deity in bodily form, that he died uh, as a payment for sin, a payment that would be made once for all, and that he rose again from the dead three days later, thus assuring that anyone, Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female, barbarian, Scythian, it didn't matter where you were in the strata of life. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved from your sins. That's truly good news. The gospel further uh, promises to not only save us from our sins, but then that it would restore us to the fullness of our humanity. That which was lost in the garden when Adam sins. And the curse begins to work its way into humanity. The good news of Jesus Christ is, I'm not only going to save you from your sins, but I'm going to restore you to the fullness of your humanity, your humanness. You are going to become truly bearers of the image of God. And that would come in the form of life. And Jesus said life that would be in abundance. Now, this coming Wednesday, it's 40 days since Christmas. If you think back then, almost 40 days now, no wonder on the night in which Jesus was born that the angel said, fear not, behold, I bring you what? Good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So when Jesus announces that the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, you see it there in verse number 15, within that good news, that gospel announcement, there is an invitation then, and that invitation is extended uh, to then follow him, to follow him. And this invitation, as we see, is extended to all kinds of people who are in all kinds of situations and all kinds of places in their life. In, in Mark 1, uh, in verses 14 through 20, we read about two sets of brothers that Jesus uh, calls to follow him. And those brothers are to leave their family business. And as they do, they begin uh, to follow him. They are fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John. But then in chapter number two, where we were last week, and I'll just mention it again, that now um, Jesus is again by, uh, beside the sea, verse 13. The crowd's coming to him. He's teaching them. And now he's passing by the tax booth. He sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, we know as Matthew, the writer of the first gospel. He's sitting in the tax booth, and Jesus says to him, follow me. And Matthew rose, came down from his booth, and followed Jesus. The thing to remember is that Jesus intends to transform people's lives from the inside out. Amen. From the inside out. And this transformation will be done with the same divine authority that Jesus uses to raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. But what we should note as we read Mark's gospel, 
that in contrast to those miraculous interventions which are identified as being immediate, the transformation of the disciples will take place through the experience of being with Jesus over time. And we have to understand what Mark is setting up for us. Diverse men, diverse backgrounds, diverse opinions are being immersed together in a relationship one with another with Jesus right in the center of it. Now if you read any of the Gospels, but especially Mark's Gospels, and you get very far in and you see these guys bickering and arguing and who's the greatest and who's the not and whatever it might be, you might think the strategy is ineffective. I mean, wouldn't it be better to just get a group of people together who agree on everything? Isn't that a better way to move a project forward when you're sitting around a table, right? And everybody's in agreement. Well, good luck, right? Good luck finding that. But the strategy is not ineffective because the purpose of the gospel is to transform from the inside out. Not to just get external agreement on things. All you Stuart fans, raise those hands. Yes, hallelujah, we're together. No, you might hate me about something else on the inside though, right? The purpose of the gospel is to bring people together. And that gospel isn't rooted in human agreement. It is rooted in the kingdom of God being at hand. That's what Jesus says. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is in reach. It's right within your grasp. This means that all diversity is now subject to the will and the work of Jesus. All diversity. Subject to the will and the work of Jesus. Which is why then, and I left it out on purpose at the end of verse number 15, we must commit ourselves to living penitent lives, lives of continued repentance towards God and continued faith in Jesus. That is the response required from all who desire to be lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. For the only way that transformation comes and we are unified around Jesus is when we continue to repent over our sins and we continue to believe in Jesus. We may hold any number of opinions about any number of things and will not need uh, uh, or require each other to agree on those things. But what we need to see in each other is Jesus and to be drawn together in him. And that is what we will see from the disciples Initially, again, it's in the word immediate or immediately, which shows up 35 times in Mark's gospel. Jesus immediately heals, immediately casts out demons, immediate action takes place. But not so with the disciples. They're transformed over time. The work that Jesus does with the disciples initially doesn't produce dramatic results. Follow me, they follow. You see Peter and James and John and Andrew go back fishing occasionally. He's bringing together all kinds of people. They're trying to work out their differences of opinions, whatever it might be. There are not dramatic and immediate results in discipleship. 
But it is very important to note that Jesus does not need to wait to uh, use the disciples. He uses them while they are in process. And, and, I, and I think this is such a valuable point for us to remember. We will not be complete until the day of glory. But God doesn't look at our incompleteness and go, oh, I am going to bench you for a while. No. As we walk with Jesus, we are transformed. As we are drawn together, immersed in relationships of love with Christ in the center, that's where the transformation takes place. So please, let this be a reminder for all who may grow impatient or judgmental towards other Christians. Our, completeness will our incompleteness will continue until the day when, and I'll quote Paul here, by the power of the risen Christ who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things unto himself. That's when everyone will finally be on the same page. When our lowly bodies are now transformed by him and we enter into the new heavens and the new earth celebrating together one with another people from every tribe and tongue and nation the glory of the risen Christ. Now, if you spend time reading Mark, and I hope you will, one of the things that you'll pick up on is the idea of growth. The idea of growth. That the kingdom of God is a living thing, and as a living thing, it is growing. It is growing. And growth becomes central then to the ministry of Jesus. In chapter 1, Mark moves us from the somewhat limited ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus, which is marked by growth. His fame spreads. Multitudes of people are coming to him. He's healing all kinds of sickness. He's healing all kinds of diseases. The kingdom of God is growing, and it's also growing through people. Now, we're only given by Mark the, uh, the invitation uh, Jesus gives to uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. But in a few chapters down the road, he's going to name all of those same men that Charity read their names from the book of Acts, except for one, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed, and, uh, betrayed Jesus, right? And so what we see is this growth of the kingdom taking place. It was the largeness of Christ's love then that brought about the growth of the disciples. It wasn't the ability of the disciples. And, and we can't miss this lest we get somewhat, you know, off kilter in our own discipleship. It was the fact that Jesus was in the center of it all that allowed for all of the diversity to finally get worked out and they all get on the same page as followers of Jesus Christ. That's why I use the hymn at, at the beginning of the sermon uh, when the hymn writer penned that line, for the love of God is broader than the measure of a man's mind. Would you agree that we are somewhat limited in our thinking? Would you agree, as Paul said, that so often we see through the glass darkly? 
you know, we would have looked at those disciples probably the same limited way we look at people. So you, you can't use those guys. You can't bring a, a, a cheating tax collector together with four businessmen that he's cheating from. It, it won't work. You can't do it. You can't do it. And yet, what did Jesus do? That I want you, 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 oh, and you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Peter and Andrew, James and John? They're, they're hey, we're disciples of Jesus. We're going along. And as they come to that crossroads, they say, no, so familiar, because that's where they would have paid their taxes. There they are, and there's Matthew, and they just want to kind of like just, don't, we don't want them to see us, you know? And Jesus says, hang on just a second. And he says, Matthew, come on down here. You're going to follow me. And then he looks at those four guys, maybe, and he says to them, oh, and by the way, we're going to go eat at his house later. You see how crazy that is? And that's nuts. I mean, that's just crazy. And yet that's exactly what, that's exactly what Jesus does. When we grow with Jesus, a grace-filled largeness then comes into our lives as we are immersed together in this new language of the new creation, the language of the love of Jesus, then we begin to have a grace-filled largeness that works out in our lives as well. What did Jesus know about Matthew? He knew everything about Matthew. What did he know about Peter and Andrew and James and John? He knew everything about them. He knew what they thought about Matthew. And yet he said, I want you, and I want you, and I want you, and I want you, and he brings them together. And he begins then to grow them. A largeness of grace begins to grow in their lives. I mean, this is what he does. He takes the smallness of our human experience that is often tainted with jealousy and resentment and unforgiveness and attitudes of retribution And he transforms it from the inside out and we begin to grow with a largeness of grace. And that largeness of grace is intended then to overcome the very smallness of our lives. Grace always grows things. Sin always shrinks things. Just think about the people you know who are shriveled up with jealousy. Think about the people you know who are shriveled up with resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, attitudes of retribution. And then step back and hear the gospel say, no, no, that is not how humans were intended to live. Shriveled up people cast off into into their own little world of resentment. That is not how humans were meant to live. And my gospel intends to come in and change that because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent then and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the more we immerse ourselves in loving relationships with one another, relationships that even value our diversity, the more we will flourish and the greater our unity will become. Yeah, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, Pastor, I love you, but you got it all wrong about stewards. And I'm telling you, it's gonna, I'm going to have to break fellowship with you. 
I'd be like, hey, listen, why don't you just take me to Cumberland Farms? Because <laughs> it's not a gospel issue. It's not a gospel issue. I'll drink the bad coffee, they're fine, but it's not a gospel issue. <laughs> you know? What does the gospel do? It brings growth. It brings growth when we give a continued response of repentance and faith. Now, Matthew couldn't keep cheating his fellow Jews. He had to repent. Peter couldn't keep living the way Peter lived. He had to repent. This is the change. You see, it means that we don't focus on our diversity first. We focus on Jesus who is the unifier and you know, while there is virtue in diversity, there is no meritorious grace in it. Meritorious grace is found in Christ and in Christ alone, for he is the one who unifies us. Heaven and earth can come together in the midst of diversity, only when then disciples, as they follow Jesus, act in love towards one another. As they grow in the largeness of grace. I believe that as we follow Jesus, Jesus intends for us to view each other through the lens of the gospel, which is to say through his lens, through his lens. For he knows everything about us, knows everything about me, he knows everything about you. And in his wisdom, he's brought us together in this place to be his people at this time. For his glory, for the good of these communities, for the world in which we live. If we will learn to depend upon God and the power of his forgiveness in Christ, that as God has forgiven us, we forgive others. As God has restored us, we restore others. Then we will have a largeness grow in our life. A flourishing will take place that we never thought possible. And just as the leopard was made clean, we too will be made clean. Just as the paralytic was uh, made to be able to walk, our paralysis will be removed and we too will be able to walk. We will be able to grow. Can you imagine men who were distrustful of each other begin to have their lives put together by Jesus in such a way that, that you read what Charity read for us from Acts 1. There they are in one accord, right, praying together getting ready to go out, filled in the power of the Holy Spirit, and do what was absolutely impossible except for God. Why? They were transformed as disciples. Our experience of largeness is grounded then in the largeness of Jesus, who was willing to be reduced to smallness as he suffered and he died. But what appeared to be smallness was actually the path to largeness, to growth. I mean, think about how absurd it is for us to say to anybody today that the only way for us to reach our full potential is when we embrace Jesus, the one who was willing to be reduced to nothingness. Now, I remember clearly back in the early 80s, uh, 
far too many days, but nevertheless, I did it. You could find me at the YMCA at noontime playing basketball. In a noon basketball league. It was great. And all over the walls at the Y started showing up these posters about believe in yourself. You can only reach your full potential by believing in yourself. And over the last, what, 40 years now, that has grown to where the absolute mantra of the day is, everything depends on you. You can't trust anybody, you can't depend on anybody, it's all about you. You're going to be the one who makes your life or not. It's all about you. The Christian gospel says the exact opposite. It is only as we die to ourselves and we follow the one who was reduced to nothingness, who hung on a cross in his cry of dereliction said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A scene of true forsakenness, of absolute ungodness. Only in the horror of that scene where Jesus is reduced to nothing as a human being can we find hope to become full as human beings. For in that scene, at that place of suffering is where Jesus made it possible for us to be changed from the inside out. Three days later, he walks out of the tomb. He overcomes death. He opens the path of life, a life of flourishing, a life of growth. A life that says, I'm going to bring all kinds of people together in my church. They're going to have a variety of opinions. And yet, I'm going to unify them around one thing, me. The great unifier, Jesus. And as they follow me, they will grow. And as they grow, they will become more like me. As they become more like me, they will be used by me with great effectiveness because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. My friends, the future is Jesus Christ. And the only way for us to reach our full humanity, our full potential is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel, and let's follow Jesus together. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word to us this morning. And I pray, O oh God, for your grace and your mercy to be poured out. I pray for any who are still stuck in the paralysis of sin and brokenness. That by your spirit they might be visited today and light would pour in. Life would come. They would turn from their own way and begin to follow you. If they want to do that and are doing that and need help, let them know that we can help them do that. We're here for them. Father, I pray for our church. We celebrate the great diversity among us. It's tense at times, but nevertheless, you have put us together. But we only celebrate that diversity as the light of the gospel shines into it. That we are diverse but unified in Christ. And may we lean more and more into that great unity we have. 
For we too, O God, are in such need, day by day, to be brought into the fullness of your love and your grace. And now as we prepare ourselves for your table, which again is a picture of how you bring us together, body broken, blood shed, I pray that each might be able to eat and drink truly of one accord, one heart together, by your grace and for your glory. We'll spend a few moments in quietness preparing ourselves for the table, and then we'll eat and drink together. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.